It's a privilege to be with you this morning and to bring to you and with you and listen to you, listen along with you to the good news of Jesus Christ. Most of you probably don't know me, and some of you probably know me too well, but I came to be the lead pastor here at Pillar Church in 2003 and served until 2012 when this church together sensed God calling it to live into a new life, reestablishing ourselves as a church that was reconciling differences, raising up leaders, redeeming the city, and renewing the church. We sensed that because in our history there was a deep division and fight that had wounded the mission of our church, and we felt God calling us to live into something bigger and greater in the future. Pastor John Brown joined us at that time and became the lead pastor, and it's been a wonderful journey since then. I worked for a few years in the middle of things at Western Seminary at the Colossian Forum and then came back here at Pillar last year in August to work as the executive pastor here, and I'm just delighted to be with you this morning. My work began as a minister in campus ministry at the University of Colorado in Boulder. It was an unconventional, challenging, secular context. Boulder was a party school. Christianity wasn't cool among students and staff. It was estimated that less than 10% of the 20,000-some students were connected with a church or a ministry. It was hard to have conversations about Jesus with anyone, and it was really difficult for those students who were Christians to live out the Christian life and not get caught up in all of the pressures of living the hedonistic, cool, self-centered, pleasure-seeking life of Boulder. It was at times strangely demoralizing to be in such a beautiful place, but to feel so pressured and challenged And so every year I'd like to take the leaders of our ministry, the student leaders, up to a mountain somewhere and get above our small view of things and take in the grandeur of God's creation. And often we would go to Long's Peak and there we would rise above our small city and take in the vast horizon, the panorama of God's creation below this 14,259-foot peak. There was always a point in the journey up, the six-hour journey up, where you came to what was called the keyhole, and you stuck your head through and realized you were on the, at the edge of a ridge, and the trail went to the left along the sharp edge of this ridge and dropped a 1,000 feet down. And students over and over would get to that point and say to me, you sure this is safe? And I would say every single time, yeah, if you're paying attention. And we would head up to the last few uh, minutes of that hike, about a half an hour probably to the top, and take in that view and remember the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who dwell in it. To remember the vast story of the gospel and how we're really serving a God of all creation, a God who is reconciling all things to himself in Christ. It was our moment to catch a vision a grander vision of our small lives. Well, Isaiah, the prophet, does something similar with us 
as he casts his vision of God's kingdom in chapter 2, listen along with me to this vision Isaiah proclaims. The word that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above all the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us walk, to, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, so that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their pruning, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, nor shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Prophets serve to announce to us their bigger picture of reality, what they see happening in the world and what God is doing about it. They call it like it is, both the truth about our broken-down selves and our broken-down world and the truth about God's surprising intervention and redemption in the midst of all of it. Isaiah 1 and 2 are great examples of that contrast between the disturbing violence and crumbling of the world and God's incredible, gracious vision of coming to redeem it. Chapter 1 proclaims basically that the trouble is coming and it's time you see that you brought this on yourselves. It's your system, your own desires, your own devices that are now getting the results they're designed to get. You neglect justice, ignore the widows and orphans, you exploit the poor, and the world is going to suffer. Creation suffers, you will suffer. Sadly, the breakdowns in our world throughout history are mostly of our own doing. In hindsight, all of this makes perfect sense. Read through Second Kings and Second Chronicles. Track all of the kings and what they do. They look the other way on, on compromises with injustice and idolatry. And of course, the nation begins to crumble, and then they focus, they form unholy alliances with unholy partners. And this, after all, should be no surprise to us, because this happens over and over again in history. But dwelling on this kind of judgment builds in us and the world around us a kind of negative energy. As one studier of systems, both in the family and organizations, has said, any system that focuses on damage and blame will never experience healing. And so the great surprise of this prophecy is the vision of God's coming shalom, his kingdom, 
Isaiah 2, the vision of the mountain of the house of the Lord, of the Lord's presence and the Lord's teaching and the Lord's transformation into from the nations of the world learning war into the people of God learning peace. The negative momentum of the judgment is transformed into a motivating vision of peace. John Calvin said that he thought God gave the prophets visions to serve as seals to the promises God had made with words. So the visions were intended to be dramatic portraits of what was going to happen, sealing what God had said he would do earlier to restore his people, to bring them back, to never leave or forsake them. Visions were almost like sacraments, sealing in the promises with dramatic pictures that would never leave their minds like this stunning vision of a mountain rising and everyone streaming to it and people taking their implements of war and forging them into implements of farming and life. God brings peace. Every once in a while, we experience these dramatic moments that serve for us as signs and seals of God's shalom. In 2015, I moved from Pillar to work at Western Seminary, and I worked there with a program to help train and equip pastors dealing with conflict in their churches, decline of membership, controversies that were stirring up, to learn how to be good leaders in the midst of all the pressures that churches face today. At that time as well, my own family was experiencing many crises. My parents were ailing and dying, and my brother-in-law had been diagnosed with lung cancer. And in the midst of all of that, I had been invited by friends to attend a performance of the Grand Upward Symphony of a number of pieces, one of which was Ray Fon Williams' piece, Dona Nobis Pachem, Grant Us Peace. I went, I have to confess, I went to this performance reluctantly, I didn't really feel like hearing the symphony perform, but good friends that I wanted to spend time with invited us to come along, so I went, and I sat there in the front row with my arms crossed and the program in my hand, thinking, well, we'll get through this. But I began to read the notes about Ray Fun Williams' life. He was born into a wealthy family in the late 1800s and went to the best music schools and graduated from Cambridge, got his doctorate in music and began composing music, became a fairly popular composer of music. He was also an expert in British folk music. But then in 1914, as World War I broke out, he enlisted in the army to be part of the medical corps, shuttling wounded soldiers from the front lines to hospitals and sometimes carrying the dead from the front lines back to morgues. He witnessed horrific battles, one of which was a battle that led to 1.25 million casualties, which is staggering to even hear or think about. After the war, he returned home to Britain and he began to live his life but found that he had trouble adjusting and couldn't write music 
anymore for, for two or three years. And then he began composing again. And sure enough, in the 20s and then early 30s, Germany, Germany again began skir- stirring with uh, rumors of war, with, with moves towards war. They began actually arming themselves in defiance of the Treaty of Versailles. And so Rayfon Williams wrote this piece drawing on the prophets of the Old Testament and upon the mass liturgy to be a prophetic experience for the people of that time as rumors of war were coming across uh, the English Channel. And so he wrote this piece, a little piece of which I want to play for you at this moment. It's hard to capture a live performance in a brief clip. But I trust me that during that moment, as I listened to this, the soprano's voice piercing over the top of all of the cacophonous symphony and drums and choir trying to play, sing these dissonant notes together. Perhaps it was the whirlwind of worries about my brother-in-law's lung cancer. Perhaps it was the regular background at that time the background sound from reports of shootings of unarmed suspects or ambushed police or, at the time, more campus shootings. Perhaps it was just the dissonance I felt about living in Holland so peacefully, but so much of the world is living in poverty and strife and war and struggling for the basics. Perhaps it was just my own battle with temptation and impatience with how slow sanctification happens in my life. But the music lifted me out of my seat. The arms I had crossed were now filled with goosebumps and tears were coming down my cheeks to the beautiful sound of, Gloriam of God, grant us your peace. Don Anobis Pachem, Lamb of God, grant us your peace. Isaiah's stunning vision lifts us out of our dissonant judgments of one another, of our world. It lifts us out to see this word, this thing that is happening in God, this vision of God's mountain rising above all the others and God, people streaming to it where God is teaching them. All the nations and peoples coming, God is going to judge between them and arbitrate and all the implements of war transformed into implements of life. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. John Calvin, in his commentary on Isaiah, says that this vision is really about the church in Christ, the transformation of the church in Christ, Christ who came teaching on a mountain, 
leading us into Jerusalem where he died and rose and poured out his spirit. And finally, the Holy Spirit, the holy city coming out of the sky of the heavens and descending as it is described at the end of Revelation and all the nations streaming and walking in the light of the Lamb and of God. Listen to what he says about Isaiah 2. Nothing is more desirable than peace. But while all imagine that they desire it, everyone disturbs it by the madness of his lusts. For pride and covetousness and ambition lead us to rise up in cruelty against each other. Since, therefore, they are naturally led away by the evil passions to disturb society, Isaiah here promises the correction of all this evil. For as the gospel is the doctrine of reconciliation, which moves the enmit- removes the enmity between God and us, so it brings men into perfect peace and harmony with each other. The meaning amounts to this that Christ's people will be meek, laying aside fierceness, will be devoted to the pursuit of peace. It's that kind of vision that propels Paul to say to the Ephesian church, Gentiles and Jews trying to live together in their competing visions of the world, these words, remember, You who are Gentiles by birth, called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision, a circumcision made in the flesh by human hands. Remember that at one time, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of grace, without God and without hope in the world. But now you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace. In his flesh, he has broken, made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances in order that he may establish in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace, and reconcile both groups to God in his body through the cross, thus putting to death the hostility through it. And so he came preaching peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with all the saints and members of the household of God built on the holy foundation of the prophets and apostles with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone from whom All things are joined together and grow into a holy temple to the Lord through whom you also are being joined together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. The early church to whom Paul wrote was actually a diverse, struggling, divided at times group of people Gentiles and Jews trying to coexist together alongside each other with a lot of things to battle over. What would hold them together was not techniques and methods and tricks, but a vision for life, a vision for life that had emerged through what had happened in Jesus. N.T. Wright, writing about this, says, with all the variety of the early church, and it was very diverse, Is there anything at all that held 
early Christian, early Christianity together? What united early Christians deeper than all the diversity was what they told and what they lived, a form of Israel's story which reached its climax in Jesus and which then issued in their spirit-given life and now their task. Their strong center was not a theory or a new ethic or an abstract dogma or rote learned teaching, but a particular story told and lived. Just weeks before I moved to Holland in 2003, Ontario was actually in the midst of an epidemic, the SARS epidemic, a related virus to the coronavirus. The hospitals were under strict quarantine. Only one family member could visit families. And um, it was really scary for a little while. Frank Dom, a 90-year-old member of our congregation, had been brought to emergency, and he was dying. Had had lung problems and had pneumonia, and he was about to die. Somehow, he convinced the, the powers that be at Kingston General Hospital to let me come and see him, even though they didn't allow clergy at the time. So I went and put on the booties and the hairnet and the mask and the whole gown and the gloves and came into Frank's room, and I said what you usually do. Frank, how, how are you doing? He never answered the question. He shot back a question at me. Why did they do it? I was stunned. I had no idea what he was talking about. And so I said, why did who do what? And then he unfolded this story about something that happened 40 years ago in his life, how some kind of dis discussion had happened about the capital campaign for a school and he wasn't able to give money and the elders said, you need to give money. And he said, I can't really give money. And they said, you do. And the message he heard, whether they said it or not, was you aren't welcome at the table, Frank, unless you participate and give money. And he said, I'm not going to give money. I can't. I don't have it. And so for 40 years, he sat in church with his arms closed and didn't participate in communion. And near his deathbed, this whole story was weighing him down. And he parted out, why did they do it? Why did they make me come? Why did you do it? Weeping and crying and yelling. I was totally unprepared for this story, and I don't remember exactly what I said, except for a couple things which were Frank, that was wrong. You are welcome at the table. It is the grace of Jesus that welcomes you to this table. Not anything you did or something someone else did can keep you from the grace of Christ. If you want to be there, you're welcome. God loves you and has welcomed you into his presence already through the grace and death and life of Christ. And he wept and wept and wept and suddenly, peace. We prayed, I left, and a couple days later he died. And then even more remarkably, I went to his home to help plan the funeral service with his wife. And there at the house was almost his whole family with grandchildren in their 20s at the time, gathered around there, and everyone was quiet when I walked in the room. And it was the strangest setting I've ever experienced. And I said, what's going on? And one after the other said, tell us what happened. Because the word had gotten out from his wife, who had been in the room, 
that Frank had been transformed. One of the people I talked to was his 20-year-old grandson who worked as a script writer for the World Wrestling Federation in Toronto. I thought there was a beautiful irony in him having that kind of a job. And we had this conversation about God's grace and God's love and God's expansive story in Jesus. There was a longing in that room to hear that story. Friends, we're living at a time when people are longing to hear the bigger story. We're living in the midst of one of the greatest times of upheaval in our country, in our communities, I think, in the church. It's not at all clear that the upheaval is over. We may, in fact, only be kind of at the keyhole, looking down the, the way and wondering, is it safe? One tempting route for us to take is the route of, dam of, of damage and blame and judgment, of choosing sides and going to battle, of learning war, sharpening our implements of war. And let's face it, it's an option we've taken over and over again in the past. But I'm here to tell you that it's not a route that leads upward. Rather, it leads down ever narrower into a smaller vision of life, of God, of each other. And God offers us this bigger vision to walk in the light of Jesus, to catch a glimpse of the grand story of the gospel, to rise above the anxiety and the division and fear once in a while, to see that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, that God in Christ is reconciling all things to himself. At times, you may wonder if this journey is safe, and let me assure you it is, as long as you're paying attention. It's very secure, immovable, unshakable. So come, house of Jacob. People of God, pillar church, whoever's listening, let us walk in the way of the Lord. Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, Grant us peace. Amen.